You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. To episode 17 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on feminism and science fiction, looking particularly at Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Victoria Farmer and Sheila Woodruff. Hello, Victoria and Sheila. Hi. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners new to the program. Uh, Victoria, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I am Victoria Farmer. Uh, I just finished my doctorate from Florida State University, uh, and I'm currently an adjunct instructor of humanities and social sciences, focusing primarily on uh, English composition, English literature, and sociology classes at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, Uh, and I'm trying to uh, get the hang of a new teaching schedule. I taught uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a couple of semesters in a row, and uh, and now I'm teaching Tuesday, Thursday this semester. So um, I, I'm trying to figure out what 75 minutes feels like, and, and that is my current uh, educational predicament. That's pretty much me right now. Oh, thanks, Victoria. So what about you, Sheila? <laughs> I'm Sheila Woodruff, and I'm I'm sorry I'm laughing because I remember, like, going back to grad school, one of the downsides of leaving schooling for a while and coming back to it was every time the new semester started, I was a hot mess trying to, like, figure out my schedule and make sure I wasn't missing classes and doing the right homework by the right days. (laughs) Like, the first two weeks were just awful. I hated it. So I'm sorry that you're going through that and wishing you the best, that it settles quickly. (laughs) not fun. Um, well, I'm, like I said, I'm Sheila. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I have a master's in English from Florida state and, um, have spent time as a middle school language arts teacher. I worked on an, a federal after-school grant for low-income schools for a number of years. Um, currently I stay at home with my two energetic little kids. Um, but I also write and provide professional development for after-school providers when I have the chance to do so which is fun. Marie? Thanks, Sheila. I'm also adjusting to a new sort of a teaching schedule because last, last semester I had three-hour classes, which was the first time I had that, and that was a little difficult to plan for. Now I'm back to the 75-minute classes and appreciating their relative brevity. <laughs> but, um, anyway, my name is Marie Haas. I'm a PhD candidate in Renaissance Literature at Florida State University, and I'm currently in Tallahassee. And I've always been interested in science fiction because I grew up, you know, watching Star Trek. That was a big thing in my family. And uh, the science fiction I watched and read when I was growing up is uh, some of the things that gave me some of my first ideas of what future societies featuring gender equality might look like. 
Um, and a couple years ago, I had a chance to teach a science fiction uh, short story class at FSU. So I'm excited to be a part of this episode today that's focusing on science fiction. Um, and in this episode, we're looking at Anne Leckie's recent novel, Ancillary Justice. This is Leckie's first novel, and it was published in October 2013. Uh, the sequel, Ancillary Sword, came out last October, and the conclusion, Ancillary Mercy, is supposed to come out this year. So the story follows the first-person adventures of Breck, who is this character who has a human body, but whose mind is belongs to a troop-carrying spaceship, which is now destroyed with Breck as the last remaining fragment of the ship, because Breck had been one of the many human bodies who were slaved to the ship through... Uh, artificial intelligence technology um, these human bodies are known as ancillaries and so we get the title from that the novel gives us Breck's growing realization of the injustices supported by the Radchai empire that she had served as a ship and it shows Breck's efforts to um, try to combat or to right some of those uh, wrongs of the Radchai empire so ancillary justice quickly received a lot of praise following its release. In addition to awards like the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the British Science Fiction Association's Award for the Best Novel, and the Locus Award for the Best First Novel, Ancillary Justice was awarded both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, which are these the top honors that you can get in science fiction and fantasy. And uh, that puts Ancillary Justice in pretty good company because... Some other novels that won both the Hugo and the Nebula uh, would include Frank Herbert's uh, Dune, Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, and William Gibson's Neuromancer, these kind of really classic game-changing novels. And like these novels, Ancillary Justice presents a sweeping picture of the future worlds and cultures, and its world-building is very compelling, including... Um, details of the many cultures that Breck passes through, like the tea-drinking, glove-wearing, incense-burning Radchai, or the fermented milk drinks and mysterious glass bridges of the planet of Nilt. Um, one of the aspects of Radchai culture that becomes most immediately apparent to the reader um, and that remains in the foreground uh, throughout the novel, though, is, is this the Radchai's universal use of uh, gender-neutral pronouns. And that's approximated in Breck's narration through the universal use of feminine pronouns. And that is, for me, one of the more interesting aspects of the novel, <laughs> since the experience of reading about characters that you know do have genders but whose gender is withheld uh, forces the reader to question gender stereotypes when it comes to characterization as well as expectations for characters' behaviors associated with heteronormative uh, ways of thought. Um, and on my first reading of the novel, I was so absorbed in these universal pronouns that I didn't even notice that actually a few of the characters do receive a gender through Breck's conversations with non-Radchai people. And I was a little bit disappointed to notice that the gendering of a few characters on my second reading 
um, since the openness of the orig- my original impression of the novel was sort of more compelling to me. But what's being done through the pronouns and through most characters not receiving a clear gender assignment would be uh, hard to approximate, I think, in a visual medium. Uh, despite that, uh, the novel has been optioned by Fabric and Fox Television, though it's not certain, of course, yet if, if a TV series will emerge from it. I'd be interested to see how they try to deal with that. Lecky herself has expressed some concerns about um, how the the way gender is dealt with in the novel could translate to a screen. She's also expressed some concerns about potential whitewashing, since in Radchai culture, the more upper-class aristocratic characters are dark-skinned, and of course she would want this uh, presentation of the characters to be preserved in a TV adaptation. Um, so we'll have to wait and see if any uh, visual media adaptations emerge and how they uh, translate that gender commentary to the screen if they do uh, if they do get made. So in the novel, a lot of work, I think, is being done through the pronouns and through the descriptions of the Radchai approach to gender. And it's one of the aspects of the novel that's been both celebrated and criticized. So Sheila, maybe you could tell us a little bit about those responses. Sure. Um, I read a couple articles about this, and I'm sorry, I have to apologize. My throat keeps catching. I'm getting over cold here. Um, We read a couple articles. One was um, from Wired that spoke more about the book at large um, and specifically about the pronouns or just specifically about this usage of the pronouns. But um, it it brings up that point that you were saying that as a reader – Unless you're reading extremely carefully, you can easily uh, miss that some of these characters are gendered. Like you mentioned, Marie, I caught a couple on the first planet Breck is on um, or is on in every other chapter. Um, It's called Nilt. And the the Nilters use these gendered pronouns and it's frustrating to Breck to no end, which is fairly amusing. Um, But the, the, the Wired article, you know, reminds you that it, it's very easy to miss the gender that's given on those in those places, and um, even words like sister and um, niece, I'm guessing, aren't used to identify gender. I mean, those words are used throughout the book, but I don't think they're necessarily meant to speak of female characters. Um, so it's it goes even beyond the pronouns. I I thought. Do you, did you get that vibe as well, Marie? Oh, yeah. So something like Daughters of the House is also supposed to be universal for like children of the house and that sort of phrase. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't on my own little planet reading that. So um, this has been done before. Ursula Le Guin, a couple different sources pointed out, has done this. I haven't read. Um, It's her the the story that she did it in was called the left hand of darkness and i've not read that personally um but she used masculine pronouns in the same way which um so it doesn't make this unique but the fact that she's using these feminine pronouns is certainly interesting and um it does it does catch you off guard at least it caught me off guard as i was i'm getting into that but i think we'll talk a little bit more about our personal reactions in a moment um I, as you're talking about the TV show, the Wired article kind of talks about that as well and how um, that will be really difficult to tease out or to, or to not identify gender through the characters in, in a visual way. Um, and then 
the second article that I read was um, on Tor.com. The blogger Alex Daly McFarlane wrote an article called Post-Binary Gender in Sci-Fi Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. Um, and I thought her or his, Alex's blog was um, a lot more interesting. Um, you know, speaks a lot about the possibilities of not using um, specific gender language, but it talks a fair bit about the shortcomings of this particular novel in doing so. Um, kind of the, the highlight points for me um, was that it was the question of why not invent another pronoun? Um, if you, if you really want the sort of, um, uh, you know, a, a complete muddling of the gender binary, why not come up with a pronoun that is foreign alien, um, to a reader than, um, sorry, that's foreign to a reader. And I thought that was a really good point when, when you don't have, a word um, in English, and we don't have a strong word in English um, for that, then why not just make one up if you're trying to really make people think about that? And I didn't have a good answer to it, even reading most of the way through the book. I didn't quite finish it. I didn't have a personal answer to that. So I'm hoping we can maybe dive into that a bit in, the, in a minute when we get to the reading segment. Yeah, I think some good um, points of criticism were raised, especially in that Tor article, um, with particularly talking about it's not fair to misgender characters willfully. Um, though, as we'll talk about in a minute, I think there's some more nuances to what's going on with the gendering and the pronouns in the novel. But um, part of what's going on, I think, comes from... Uh, feminist criticisms that have been made about the way gender bias is embedded in our English language and the way we talk about language and even the way we use pronouns um, in English. So, Victoria, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that conversation. Uh, sure. I I'll definitely be uh, just telling a little bit that there's been discussion of gendered language in feminist theory pretty much as long as there's been feminist theory. So there's a lot of ground to cover here. Um, I'm just going to discuss the viewpoints of a few major theorists. Um, I'm going to do so briefly. I'll do this in chronological order. Um, I'm going to try to... Uh, to engage with themes that I think are relevant to the cultural environment that Leckie is engaging most closely with. So uh, in doing that, I'm sticking to theorists in the 20th and 21st centuries, though this conversation does start in earlier feminist theory as well. So the first place I'm going to go is a text that I recommended at the end of our last show, uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, which is first published in 1929. Um, the text as a whole is uh, about learning to prioritize women's writing, um, and, and Wolf says that we need two things to do that. Um, women need individual space, this is where the title of the text comes from, and women need um, money, economic support. So she's talking about uh, how we as a society can change our norms to make this writing exist. And the part of the text that deals most closely with issues of uh, language that you were mentioning, Marie, is this section in Chapter 2, uh, most commonly called the Professor Von X section. Uh, and this is Wolf's indictment of patriarchal privilege in, uh, in texts put forth by academia. 
And in it, Wolf concludes that as long as men control language, they control uh, history, basically, and the perception of women in history as inferior. Uh, she wonders, how shall I ever find grains of truth embedded in all this mass of paper? I asked myself, and in despair began running my eye up and down the long list of titles. Uh, she's in a, a library in Oxbridge here, uh, Oxbridge being her uh, portmanteau of Oxford and Cambridge, which sort of serves as academia at large for her. Even the names of books gave me food for thought. Sex and its nature might well attract doctors and biologists, but what was surprising and difficult of explanation was the fact that sex, woman, that is to say, also attracts agreeable essayists, light-fingered novelists, young men who have taken the MA degree, men who have taken no degree, men who have no apparent qualification save that they are not women. Uh, so she says, all these men are writing about women, um, but they don't seem to understand women. Then she reduces this series of experts to a single imagined character, Professor Von X, whom she concludes must pen, quote, his monumental work, The Mental, Moral, and Physical Inferiority of the Female Sex, end quote, because he's angry at women. Uh, he's angry at them for attempting to gain social power, and he's writing this giant book to prevent them from succeeding at it. So um, Wolf basically says that gendered language um, defaults male and privileges male experience because it's a history is written by the winners kind of situation uh, that because texts um, control what we think just keeps perpetuating itself. Then, 20 years later, in 1949, Simone de Beauvoir writes another uh, really important feminist text, The Second Sex, and in it discusses the social effects of the male linguistic default, uh, things like he as the go-to pronoun, man as representation of humankind, etc., and says that because men are represented in the linguistic default, Quote, men occupy both the positive and the neutral so that women um, kind of just have the negative left over socially. Later, French feminists um, agree with this idea that, um, that language is something that helps um, elevate men and marginalize women, and they uh, extend this idea of the negative feminine language to not just talk about text themselves, but to talk about the way texts write and construct bodies. Uh, Luce Irigaray's Sortis and also Helene Sixou's The Laugh of the Medusa, um, both of which come out in the early to mid-1970s, argue that, uh, that language is constructed in sets of binaries, uh, good, bad, uh, light and dark, sun and moon, and that all of these binaries have a, a sort of organizing binary underneath them. This organizing binary is man and woman, with man being privileged and woman being marginalized. Um, because woman is marginalized, Helene Sixou argues in The Laugh of the Medusa, um, she must learn to write herself, learn to uh, create her own kind of linguistic and literary constructions that are separate from and different from male ones. A couple decades later, Susan Bordeaux in 1993's Unbearable Weight um, 
kind of looks backward, says that this relationship between privileged male language and the marginalized female body is much older than other theorists are talking about. She says that it has its roots in the Cartesian mind-body split and that this split is often gendered uh, with the... Uh, the mental and the logical being gendered masculine and the um, kind of baser uh, physical being gendered feminine. We get back to a discussion um, uh, centered on language and pronouns in the last theorist I'm going to talk about, uh, Judith Butler. Uh, in 2004's Undoing Gender, uh, Butler, who's a, a really foundational uh, feminist theorist, but also is thought to basically invent uh, queer theory. In Undoing Gender, she's building on an earlier work, 1990s Gender Trouble. Uh, in Gender Trouble, Butler argues that um, not just gender, but also uh, biological sex um, can be thought of as social constructions. Undoing gender pushes this further, the most important to today's discussion being um, the idea of gender-neutral pronouns. She talks about words like Z and Zier, uh, and these words can operate as alternatives to gendered pronouns, uh, mo most commonly third-person uh, pronouns, pronouns like he, she, or it. Um, and these Z and Zier are used most often when a person's gender is unknown or in cases when a person's gender identification doesn't fit common binary uh, male or female structures, which is the case for a lot of trans people and also uh, some people who identify as intersex or genderqueer. So that is a very quick tour of uh, feminist theory on gendered language. Well, wow, thanks, Victoria, for that really, it seemed like a very thorough overview. Um, and that's, I think, some, some very good background for what we can see perhaps going on with the, uh, the pronouns and the discussion of gender and ancillary justice. So given that background, let's move now into the reading section of the episode where we'll discuss these issues with pronouns and gender as well as looking at what the novel is saying about empire and colonization and about religion. So what's going on with gender and ancillary justice? On one level, I think that the universal she that Breck uses in her narration uh, forces the realization of this gender bias already present in English that so many of the, the feminist uh, writers that Victoria just mentioned talk about. Um, that forces this realization through the exaggerated reversal of what's present in English. So instead of the male pronoun being the default, the female pronoun now becomes not only the default, but also the universal pronoun, the only pronoun. Um, so on that sort of simple level, it seems like we can see the novel criticizing that male default that still often remains in English through that exaggerated reversal. And um, that kind of criticism that I see going on in the novel is a reason that, uh, well, I see, definitely see the points that um, some critics like the author of the, the Torah article is making, especially about the willful misgendering of many characters in the novel. I also think that that universal she is still serving a compelling purpose here. And um, 
it would be different, of course, if the novel weren't a novel, but a treatise advocating that we should all in real life now today adopt the universal she and say, everybody is, that's, that's a woman, that's she, that's her, you know, that, that would, of course, be, you know, a bad thing to do. That would be terrible. Just, I mean, that would be just as bad as a universal he. Um, but of course, I don't think that the novel is advocating us adopting she as an actual universal pronoun. Um, and of course it's not. And I'd really say it's arguing the opposite um, through its criticism of the English language gender bias that hides the submerged implied universal he. Um, then too, I think that uh, though the gender is withheld for most characters um, and the, the she as used by Breck is gender neutral, having that universal she still sort of adds that inevitable veneer of femaleness to every character, even when you know that they're actually a, mer- a male character. Um, and I think, I think too that the jarring nature of that gendering but not gendering is challenging the maleness of the default idea of the human a human being that a person of course is as likely to be female as to be male but like victoria explained we tend to think of the male as the standard model of humanity uh, from which the female is necessarily a departure um and that is reversed here um, and I think it's challenged through the reversal. And so it's sort of challenging all those related binaries that Victoria mentioned. So I think that's that's going on in one level with the novel's language. And uh, on another level, like I mentioned earlier, I think there's something going on with uh, in terms of the reader's impressions of the characters' genders and their gendered behaviors. So again, I was disappointed to realize on my second read-through that there are some characters who are gendered for the reader. And I think it would be better if that were left entirely open for all the characters. But aside from um, there's three, I think, of the major characters whose gender is specified, the, the majority of the characters don't get a gender beyond that blanket she. And we, knew, we know from Breck's descriptions that even for the Radchai, gender does exist. So we can assume that most of the characters, except you know maybe Breck herself being... Uh, the mind of a spaceship um, do think of themselves as having a gender Um, (laughs) even if that distinction is a very unimportant one for members of the the Radchai culture but withholding that distinction from the reader makes the reader question why they need to know they feel like they need to know the character's gender why that's often so central to how a character is presented and at the same time, then, it also challenges uh, heteronormative expectations, since the reader can't tell if a relationship like the one between Lieutenant Skaya and Lieutenant On is a heterosexual relationship or a homosexual one. And um, that's just not an issue either in the descriptions of the relationship or their speech to each other. The class differences between the two are uh, much more central than any gender differences or a lack of gender difference there. In some ways, like like Sheila mentioned, uh, ancillary justice seems to be responding to Ursula K. Le Guin's classic 1969 novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, in this way that gender is being addressed both through the language and the, the culture portrayed in the novel. 
And the left hand of darkness, we are introduced to this planet of androgynous people who at some points in their life exhibit the physical attributes of femaleness and others of maleness. And in that novel, like Sheila mentioned, the narrator, instead of uh, adopting a really gender-neutral pronoun or the universal she, uses uh, the universal he even though, of course, logically, she would be just as appropriate or inappropriate. And part of, I think, what was going on with that in the novel was a depiction of the narrator's patriarchal bias, which comes up uh, at some points in that novel. So some of the same concerns about language and the construction of gender uh, characters are going on in Le Guin's earlier novel, but Lecky takes those concerns in this different direction by pointing out the construction of gender uh, not by altering the physical nature of the characters' bodies, but through the language that the narrator uses, this universal she, and also through the Radshai culture's unconcern about the significance of gender. So, in a different way than Le Guin, Lucky promotes the realization that gender identity is constructed and isn't necessarily tied to the shape of the body. So take, for example, um, a passage from chapter 18 that describes the variety of gender presentations that Breck sees as she re-enters Radchai space. She says, I saw them all suddenly, just for a moment, through non-Radchai eyes, an eddying crowd of unnervingly, ambiguously gendered people. I saw all the features that would mark gender for non-Radchai never to my annoyance and inconvenience, the same way in each place. Short hair or long, worn unbound, trailing down a back, or in a thick curled nimbus, or bound, braided, pinned, tied, thick-bodied or thin, faces delicate, featured, or coarse, with cosmetics or none, a profusion of colors that would have been gender-marked in other places. All of this matched randomly with bodies curving at breast and hip or not, Bodies that one moment moved in ways various non-Radshai would call feminine, the next moment masculine. Twenty years of habit overtook me, and for an instant I despaired of choosing the right pronouns, the right terms of address. But I didn't need to do that here. So, for the Radshai at least, gender isn't always connected to the shape of the body. And this contributes to Brecht's confusion over identifying people's genders and cultures where the language is uh, strongly gender marked. Now, again, I don't think the novel is this treatise saying we should adopt Radshai culture. Now, far from it, given that they're the exemplars of the evil empire and colonial expansion. Um, but I do think it is at least making his argument that the construction of gender is culturally inflected rather than gender being this inherent, unchangeable essence that manifests in set constant ways across all of human life. Um, It's this construction. And it's also making the argument that it's limiting to see gender as always essentially connected with the sex a person is assigned at birth. So, of course, these aren't particularly surprising views of gender and of the construction of gender. Um, but I, I sort of liked the way they were played with um, in the novel. I found it to be a pretty creative approach. So, Victoria, what, what are some of your thoughts about uh, the pronouns or the descriptions of gender in the novel? Uh, 
I definitely agree with your assertion, first of all, that um, that the novel is, is not um, some sort of activist treatise, um, that it's, its main goal is probably to force its readers who are embedded in the male default to, to question that. Um, it does it um, early and often. Uh, on page three... Um, there's the sentence, she was probably male, when Brecht, when Brecht finds um, a, a former acquaintance who is, is sick and, and near death and decides to, um, to help this person. And, and even though I knew that this was a novel that dealt with uh, destabilizing gender through pronouns, I knew that going in, I still had to read the sentence, she was probably male, two or three times but before I kind of wrapped my brain around it and and I'm someone who thinks about um things like gendered pronouns and the male default pretty regularly teaches it so um so I I think that's that's pretty interesting that even even if you're kind of prepared for um what the novel is doing that kind of pronoun usage smacks you in the face. Um, I, I think that proves how how not used to the feminine default we are. Um, the novel is also, um, I, I think, in, in some of its early pages, maybe a, a little too clear about um, those pronoun gendered goals. Uh, on the same page, page three, Radkai don't care much about gender, and the language they speak, my own first language, doesn't mark gender in any way. This language we were speaking now did, and I could make trouble for myself if I used the wrong forms. It didn't help that cues meant to distinguish gender changed from place to place, sometimes radically, and rarely made much sense to me. So a, a paragraph yeah, that's like pretty blunt, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, a paragraph like that um, occurring so early um, was jarring in it in a different way to me than the previous sentence, um, and and in a, a less positive way. It was just a sort of political stance shoved in your face. And I mean, this is a, a stance that I support, that I agree with. I think we should be questioning pronouns, but it, it just felt like it was pushing a, a, a little hard to be so early to me. I don't know. Am, am I just being grouchy? No, <laughs> I no, felt that, the same. That's pretty blunt narration, yeah. So, yeah, what what were some of your thoughts, Sheila? Well, I you guys um, have already mentioned the two the two sections I had marked as needing to be read on air, so that's good um, for this topic. I I mean personally, when I started reading, it was a little unsettling for those same things that you've pointed out, Victoria Marie, like that one particular sentence, um, she was probably male. And there were a couple others that you do, you had to read a time or two to wrap your head around and, you know, it being good, good science fiction, good world being building science fiction. There's a lot of other things you're trying to build at the same time. And so to have that added, um, complication was, was tricky at first. And I spent a fair bit of time then trying to puzzle out, especially when they're on this, um, on this other world that, that does have gender markers and does, um, require gendered pronouns to be used correctly. Um, I spent a good bit of time too, trying to figure out, well, who is who? And, and then, you know, kind of midway through, I just stopped, I stopped bothering, um, in part because it like, it, it really just doesn't matter to the narr the narrative at all. And I haven't quite figured out how I feel about that. Um, whether I'm, I'm glad that the writers constructed this world where, where gender is unimportant, um, or whether it's kind of missing part of the point. Um, I mean, I know 
one of the great things about science fiction is you can create these worlds and do what you want with them. But at the same time, it's supposed to be, um, or the best sci-fi is a, a reflection of our current culture. Um, and in a current culture that, you know, ours specifically America, America in 2015 now, um, is very caught up in, um, gender as an important part of one's identity, whatever that gender might be. Um, it was, I found it curious to have uh, a book in which that's not part of anybody, anyone's primary concern. Um, so I didn't know if, if either of you had any thoughts about that, whether, um, you agree with me or not. And then I have a couple other ideas after you answer that question. Well, I sort of see that as like in, in not being a reflection of our culture, perhaps commenting on it by that contrast, but, um, in terms of how it succeeds aesthetically, um, yeah, well, that that's pretty much just a subjective of uh, what you prefer in narration, I suppose. But um, I agree, it, it can be pretty jarring and blunt in the narration at times. I, um, I, I don't have much to add to that except to say I, this novel was a lot for me. I, I am someone who is not great at reading science fiction and uh I, I had to draw myself maps and diagrams like, okay, this tribe is fighting this tribe and here's why and here's who's a member of which group. Um, and I still had trouble. So I, I kind of felt like I just had so many balls in the air that I was struggling to figure out everything. I, I don't know if that even speaks to what you were asking. I, I don't think that I'm qualified to make a judgment about those choices because I, I was just trying to keep up. Oh, perfectly understand. Well, that I think that kind of leads into my the next thing that I thought about. Um, the, the a lot of this, especially this character of Breck, who is you know part AI. Um, again, like the novel is told each each chapter. So, um, what is it? All the odd chapters. I forget which way goes which, but um, all the odd chapters are. Um, kind of in quote current time, um, where Breck is on this this particular quest to uh, in in the most current of days to find um, the ruler of the Ragkai and bring this message to her. Um, and the other chapters are about Breck's past when she was part of the ship, part of the AI, and not out on her own as a single solitary ancillary. Um, so I was thinking about this person as AI and just very at the last minute before we started doing the podcast, started thinking about Donna Haraway's cyborg manifesto. And so y'all's theory is much better than mine. And I hope that you can please add to it because I am just starting to scratch the surface here. But, um, from what I remember in taking feminist theory and reading Haraway, you know, a long, long time ago, um, she, she kind of points to that. I know she's talking about other things and socialism among them, but she, she points to this idea of, um, creating cyborg as maybe a, a beneficial thing, the cyborg that isn't necessarily male or female, but is, um, combined of lots of different things as, as being a positive way to pull out of our binary focus. Foci is, am I at all on the right track here? I think you are. Um, okay. I, I, I <laughs> oh, figured yeah. I figured that Haraway would come up. Um, she came up in in my 
I, I sort of reading journaled um, through the novel, and a, a lot of my um, a lot of my observations are, are very simplistic and very plot driven. Um, but I I do have one sentence in my notes that says. Um, seems like a sort of Haraway-esque heir to Frankenstein, um, now with more post-colonial commentary. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I noticed, um, bits of Cyborg too, um, both because of the combination of, um, human and technology, um, and because of, um, the, the way that those things are also very closely tied with, with issues of, of race and colonialism to, um, the Frankenstein thing is, is a little bit more on the surface, right? Ancillaries are, are made of pieces of other bodies, um, that, that seems to me to be a, a kind of nod to, um, a, a much earlier, um, mode of, fiction that deals that that novel of course deals really strongly with with issues of of gender and issues with of um race and and colonization as well oh yeah yeah so the uh the ancillary body being repurposed you could see sort of working with that frankenstein motif yeah and i I didn't think about haraway when i was reading it but i see now i really i really should have that definitely fits in (laughs) sheila Okay, good. Sometimes my readings get a little out there, so I wanted to make sure because I thought, I mean, if whether it was intended or not, I thought it, that was a pretty brilliant um, thing to insert here. And I, I just, I think this character of Breck is so fascinating um, because uh, because you know she's having to navigate so many things. She was human and was this person, but she doesn't remember that person at all. And, you know, incorporating the tech and having that be like who she is for such a long time. And she's thousands of segments, you know, she calls herself, she's the ship, but then she's all these ancillaries. Well, thousands and thousands of them. Um, and then to be fragmented down to just one, like there are all of these openings and closings and fluctuations that she goes through as a character. Um, it's just really fascinating to think about that and, you know, how, and, and yet she's totally relatable. She doesn't come off as a cyborg. And so I thought that was really fascinating because I think that's a large part of Haraway's point is, is not that we should all, you know, go out and, um, have self-actuating armor in installed into our bodies like the characters do, but that, that, these things, those kind of openings and closings should be um, more a part of who we are than the rigid definitions of binaries. So I just want to throw that out there. Oh, yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. And thank you for bringing up Haraway because I never would have thought of that. But it really it definitely goes along with the the uh, the concerns in the novel. Um, so. I, th- I see this concern with gender uh, manifested partly through the pronouns as being one of the major features of interest for me in the novel. Um, but like Victoria mentioned, there's also a lot of uh, post-colonial concerns uh, coming up, which is part of uh, what some people have criticized for the, the novel's over-reliance on tired tropes of science fiction having this evil empire and then saying this empire is evil um that's a pretty common science fiction thing but i think it can it's still worth talking about what uh what's going on with the post-colonial concerns in ancillary justice so victoria could you um tell us a little bit about that 
Uh, I will I will start us off, though I, I will say that um, Sheila is, is the closest among us to a professional uh, post-colonialist critic. So please, Sheila, if I mess this up, um, help me out. Oh man! Uh, I <laughs> here we go. I, I mentioned earlier that I I had trouble with this novel. Um, that it was hard for me to get into and hard for me to keep track of. Um, I when I found footholds, they were related most closely to issues of of race and colonization, and that surprised me because, as I said, um, that's um, I, I am not the person on this panel who is super well versed in that area, but um. When I've read science fiction and enjoyed it, it's because um, there have been kind of pieces that have jumped out at me beyond the foreignness of the general world building, pieces that I can see my own society in. And for this novel, um, I, I got a lot of those in terms of dealing with um, with colonization and race. Um, the first is at the beginning of the novel um, when in the first uh, – couple of couple of odd chapters breck is trying to get um clothes and food and medicine for this injured acquaintance of hers and she's going around um to to bars and stores trying to buy these things and she gets overcharged every time she tries to buy stuff this is a mark of her otherness uh she knows she's being overcharged the people that are overcharging her know that they're overcharging her and know that she knows and there's this sort of understood like we've got stuff that you want and uh and you can't get it from anywhere else so what are you going to do give me all your money um, that that is something that has happened historically in lots of colonized places. Um, also, there's a lot of pretty obvious um, physical and racial prejudice at work in the narrative. Breck tells us that physicality doesn't actually correspond to race or country of origin, and indeed that um, people in ancillaries can alter their physicality at will, but in spite of this, um, there are lots of people who act like they can um, identify lots of things about her just based on her physical appearance. Um, so this this seems to be lucky um, injecting the kind of race is a social construction uh, and not a physicality argument and, and playing with that a little bit. Um, one more thing that I wanted to, to mention here is that uh, – Sheila mentioned that Breck is, is really um, personable, really relatable. You root for her, and you do, um, which is really interesting for me given the novel's kind of post-colonial argument because she um, – we see her in the novel primarily as colonizer. So here's someone that the closest thing the novel has to a protagonist, though I, I don't think that's really the right word to use, um, who is an invader um, and, and who – is sort of trying to figure out um, her place in a society that is is not her original society, even though she has a semi-empowered position. So that that complexity was uh, was really interesting for me. What do you guys think about these issues? Rick is a an, a complex character to me for for some of those same reasons and. Um, really occupying a lot of different positions within 
the paradigm of empire and colonization. But uh, Sheila, what what are some of your um, how, how would you bring your post-colonial expertise to the novel? Then? <laughs> I feel a lot of pressure right now in my cold-induced haze. Um, I'm a little concerned that I'm not going to to do justice by this because, they, you know, you both pointed out there um, there are a lot of things that are brought up in often ha- heavy-handed ways um, as well. There were a couple passages I marked. Um, and it's interesting because you get it at different levels. So you get, ah, oh, there are a lot of levels going on in the book. One of the, one of the passages was, um, is in chapter seven. They're referring to this alien race. So most of the people you encounter in the story, in fact, all the people you, you actually encounter in the story are, um, human or ancillaries. So were once human, um, but there are a couple alien species referred to that figure prominently in the overarching story. One is the Presger, and and um, this chapter seven says of them, um, the Presger didn't care if a species was sentient or not, conscious or not, intelligent or not. The word they used, or the concept at any rate, as I understood they didn't speak in words, was usually translated as significance. And only the Presger were significant. All other things were their rightful prey, property, or playthings. Mostly they just didn't care about humans, but some of them liked to stop ships and pull them and their contents apart. So you have this um, species or this you know alien species out here um, who basically isn't really in the book all that much because they just don't care about humans all that much. Although, and I don't want to give like major plot points away that that isn't as true as you might find out later in the story. Um, so you have those, those, that, that alien group kind of, I guess at the top of the hierarchy because of, um, their, you know, knowledge and ways about the universe. Now they, because they're the only ones that are significant, I'm assuming haven't like deigned to be part of this growing Radkai empire. And I'm, I'm not um, exactly sure how big the empire is. I mean, it encompasses quite a few worlds, it seems like, but I, I don't know how many that is exactly. So it could be just one, you know, tiny corner of the universe, um, as far as I know here. <clears throat> so you have this Presgar alien group, then you have this Radkai empire, Radchai, I'm not sure. I've been saying it one way in my head, Marie. I think you were using a different pronunciation. But anyway, so this empire know, has been reaching out and, and the, their word is annexing because, of course, you can't just say colonizing. Um, so they're annexing these worlds as they spread and spread and spread. And, and um, very pointedly, you know, Breck mentions that they, they annex so that houses have opportunities to make more money essentially is what it's for. And that certainly ties into, you know, our, um, ideas and knowledge of colonization as it happened here. And, um, you know, uh, countries growing their empire because they want or need more goods from this place or that place. And it eventually just becomes advantageous to take them over. And it's, it's generally a, a policy of economics, um, which is how it translates here as well. So you have that empire building going on. And then below that, you have these um, these other, like, I, I want to say racial, though I don't think that's it, but you have these other um, issues being teased out on just this one particular world, the, the latest and last annex, according to uh, the beginning of the book, um, that's taking place in this 
city called Ors. Um, and I'm going to forget the other group's name, but there, there's the upper and lower city here. Um, and the upper thing is like the upper class, right? These folks all think that they're the best. And as they get annexed, they think their houses are going to get uh, all the best positions and, um, you know, benefit the most through the annexation. Um, and one of those upper household members says to one of the annexing lieutenants, one of the lieutenants of the empire, um, they've closed down this fishing area for some of these natives and these upper houses say, uh, you saw what it was like when you arrived. As soon as you open them, they'll be fished out again. The Orsians may have been a great people once, but they're no longer what their ancestors were. They have no ambition, no sense of anything beyond their short-term advantage. If you show them who's boss, they can be quite obedient, as I'm sure you've discovered. But in their natural state, they are, with few exceptions, shiftless and superstitious. And that just, like, alarm bells went off, Victoria, for me, just like I'm sure they oh, did for you. Oh, yeah, me too. Those lazy people, they're taking our <laughs> yeah. jobs. And also, they're stupid. And right. and that same character, a couple pages earlier, I'm glad you brought this up, um, says this, uh, they see what we have and don't understand that you have to work for that sort of life. Yeah. And they're envious and resentful and blame us for not letting them have it, when if they'd only work for it. So this character is, is you know, uh, is bootstraps, bootstraps. Why, why don't you <laughs> just pick yourself up and work um instead of just being lazy when you know not at all thinking about the fact that these people are choosing between being subservient and being dead probably so uh yeah i'm, I'm glad that you brought that up too exactly right and i um you know and it's interesting because that's on one world right that's not even the anything coming down from a different world or any of those like cross I mean, it's, it's cross-cultural within the world, within the town even, but, um, so yeah, I had to, I had to point that out. And she, I like that she points to superstition because the religion, I know we're getting up to religion here in a second. That's the next thing we'll talk about, but the religion of the Ratchai empire, a, a large part of it relies on casting, they call them omens, but essentially like casting the dice and reading them and reading your fortune and how these patterns play out, um, and Breck has been around long enough that she, she says at one point she's seen all the formulations, which I think is, is kind of funny. You know, this history repeats itself and boy, does it through colonization. Um, but so it's funny that this affluent person who's hoping to become one of these affluent houses now that they've been annexed um, is calling another group superstitious when in fact she, she had better well be as well if she wants to be um, as powerful as she hopes to be in the future. Yeah, and I like what you pointed out, Sheila, that this you have these multiple competing cultures not only on the same planet but within the same city because that was something that struck me with the world building in the novel in comparison with some more simplistic past pieces of science fiction where yes. you often, as in Star Trek, perhaps get a correlation of one culture to one world. So the entire planet will speak Great. one language like that is Klingon, you know, so then, um, but you, you have um, more complexity going on here with uh, the uh, picture of the multiple cultures that are at play in the Rajai Empire and their conquered or annexed territories and the outlying um, areas that aren't yet a part of the empire. Um, so also, um, 
I, I liked what you said about earlier about um, part of the point of science fiction is to provide a picture of our current um, society rather than just something that's alien and therefore amusing. And that's actually something that Le Guin says in um, her introduction to The Left Hand of Darkness that she's writing about now, not about something that's a, a far off, a distant, um, unrelated culture. Um, and I think you, you, you get that sort of approach um, in science fiction often through the way that the science fiction setting allows for creating these fictional physical equivalents of real world situations or concern. And it's often through either the advanced technology or the alien life. Um, and these, these create this kind of objective correlative working as this metaphor for whatever situation, whatever real world situation is being addressed. So when it comes to these depictions of empire and cultural control and slavery and all the associated dehumanization um, the aliens, um, being non-human, often provide this easy shorthand um, for creating this picture of oppression, whether it's the humans oppressing aliens so that the alien stands in for the human other um, of, in real-world situations of oppression. For example, like in a really bluntly in Neil Blomkamp's 2009 film District 9, where you remember all the aliens being um, basically in a camp there um oh, in, yeah. or, in johannesburg by the way just, just, Africa, just in yeah. case you didn't yeah <laughs> right. yeah so you can make sure to get the point there um, <laughs> um or or it might be through the aliens oppressing humans so we're meant through that to realize that oh no it's this alien monstrous thing to oppress and enslave each other the way these aliens are conquering these humans. Um, but even though it seems like a pretty blunt setup, sometimes it can be done with a great deal of nuance, like in Octavia Butler's uh, 1984 story, Blood Child. So there the aliens conquered Earth and the humans are either these commodities owned by a particular alien conquerors and used as vessels for the parasitic growth of alien eggs or they're confined to this limited human preserve and i mean that setup is, isn't in itself so nuanced maybe but the story's description of the relationship between the main character who's this young man destined for egg carrying um and the alien who both protects and exploits him um allows for looking at some of these complex relations between oppressed and oppressor um, so ancillary justice is following science fiction stories like that and setting up this sort of physical correlation for conquest and colonization, but it's not really through aliens here, even though there are the aliens who are peripheral to the politics of the novel, like Sheila pointed out with the, the Presker and the what is this bunch of R's in a row. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> no, I think that was right. I think they said it's a growl. It's like, <laughs> I was thinking of a the money Python, you know, the R. Yes. Oh, it, so. made, it made me think of Futurama. Do you guys watch Futurama? Oh, yeah. oh yes. Uh, Lur, the leader of Omicron, yes. Percy I8. Yeah. So the bestial othering of the aliens there, yes. But anyway, it's not primarily through these alien cultures, but it's through, um, I think, the, the technology that we get this physical correlation of 
some of the problems of empire. Um, this technology that allows Breck and the other ancillaries to be slaved to the AI minds. And it's the same technology that allows the leader of the Raj, Anander Minai, um, to consist of these many cloned bodies that are all seemingly sharing this single mind. Um, of course, there's also at the same time the criticism of the Empire uh, through all its horrible aspects like the genocide of Garced or me and I ordering Lieutenant On to massacre civilians or widespread corruption or anything like that. But at the same time, there's this uh, correlation to the control of Empire um, and the conquest of civilizations um, through this metaphor of the ancillary and uh, like with uh, what what Victoria was talking about with Frankenstein that the way that this that a member of a conquered civilization can you know actually literally be sort of absorbed and recruited into the cause of the conqueror by being transformed into an ancillary is of course this metaphor for conquest and colonization um, and the erasure of the other and the absorption into cultural conformity. So Breck, in that sense, though, is seen she's coming from this position of power in some ways, having been, you know, a, a powerful spaceship, <laughs> is also um, forming an identity beyond that of the ship she once was and is working against the Empire and she's doing so in this body that has physical markers of identification as, as a colonized other. Um, and so she's, I think you could see her taking on some of the hybridity of the colonized that's sort of going along with the Haraway cyborg hybridity. Um, like you, you could see some of the uh, hybridity as described by Homi K. Baba going on, I think, um, perhaps. There's with, some, there's with some Gloria Anzaldua in there as well, right? Could be. I'm not familiar with that. Sorry. <laughs> oh, um, Enzaldua talks about um, she's Chicana and and talks about this thing called Mestiza consciousness, um, and and Mestiza is sort of in in the middle. Um, so it's it's a, a little bit like um, Du Bois's double consciousness, but with with more of a uh, of a historical past of colonization behind it. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think there's all these sorts of things going on with uh, bricks complexity and hybridity um so there's probably some other things going on there too but for the sake of time let's move quickly on to uh religion now um so sheila what what was your impression of what's going on with the, the depiction of religion in the novel i know you've talked a little bit about it already yeah so just to summarize quickly it's um a polytheistic religion that dominates the the Radchai culture. Um, Amat is their creator god. And um, it, it seems fairly fatalistic to me, you know, that the refrain, if Amat wills it, is, is kind of seen throughout. But nobody is, it's not the sort of thing that you're particularly devout toward um you know people practice the religion because that's what's expected it's more uh I, I read it a little bit more as like you know these good old families have to make sure that their faces are seen um <clears throat> excuse me saying the right words and doing the right things um, more for propriety's sake than for actual religious sake so i don't really think there's any um demonstration of devotion that's particularly engaging and and here the other thing that's worth mentioning for me is um how 
the uh, how this, the the Red Tribe religion subsumes other religions as they annex new cultures into their own. Um, most of the time, if they can, they let the the reigning deity of that new world just kind of oh yeah 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 that's just a mod. We just call them something different. You know, they they bring that deity in under this new umbrella and say, see, it fits right here. Um, and so they do that fairly frequently. There's, there was one, um, exception to that that is mentioned, I think fairly briefly, and maybe it comes back to it. I had to, um, kind of speed read to the end. So I might've missed it. Um, and I know I'm going to say the name wrong, Var, Varslak, Varslik, but there's this one culture when they're annexed, they just vehemently, um, protest any sort of demonstration of devotion to, um, Amat or, um, the Radshai gods, lesser gods. And they like, that's their only condition. If you can call it that is that they absolutely must have their sacred place and their be allowed to, to worship their sacred God. Um, and no others like that kind of stood out to me as like a potentially Christian, um, or, you know, maybe even Jewish or monotheistic, I guess I should say, but some kind of monotheistic religion that's patterned after, um, one of the three big ones here, but I didn't know. And there wasn't a whole lot more said about that. So I was wondering if, if either of you had any comments about that, um, anything that I missed there. Uh, I think you're, Right, specifically about the kind of subsuming and adopting of religions as a part of colonial enterprise, that's something that stood out um, to me really strongly and also I think ties back to um, some of the work that the novel is doing with gender and pronouns to um, that that implied criticism of the connection between um, imposed religion and colonization made me think of uh, Mary Daly's really famous um, book, Beyond God the Father. Um, She talks about how common in history um, patriarchal religion and colonization um, go together and and reinforce one another. So I I think you're onto something there. You also have uh, something that that uh, struck pretty close to home in this connection between religion and civilization when it comes to the way the rhetoric of Christianity is still often being employed today. So, for example, this idea that America is a Christian nation, and if you're not Christian, you aren't fully American, and another people or nation that does not doesn't have this right religion is sort of lesser or benighted. And that's sort of something going into the assertion of American dominance, which you still, you do see this, this rhetoric still going on in some ways. And that's not using a rhetoric of religion in that way. Isn't limited to Christianity, of course. Um, but it's just one thing that stood out to me um, there from the novel uh, that I'd of course like to avoid in my own Christian practice. Um, and it's a kind of rhetoric that's, I think, always worth interrogating too, which the novel is trying to do, I think, in some ways. What are, what are some of you, you guys' other thoughts on this or other aspects of the novel? Uh, I think we pretty much hit the high points. Uh, Sheila, do you have anything else to add? No, I don't think so. It was it was a really entrancing book. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's been fun to talk about, and I would definitely recommend that folks go out and read it if you get a chance. Uh, 
Yeah, I think we've discussed quite a bit with the novel now. So let's go on then to our our third and final segment of the show, our recommendations for our listeners. Um, So, Victoria, I know you don't have recommendations. What is it that you would like to um, say instead? Yeah, I'm going to break with tradition. uh, And instead of giving a recommendation, I'm going to ask for some. Uh, As I said earlier in the show, um, I'm not super well-versed in science fiction. I would like to be better-versed. So, listeners, this is my call to you. Um, What should I cut my teeth on if if I want to um, understand conventions um, of science fiction better? If I want to be exposed to more good authors, uh, tell me some things I should read. Okay, and I'll pick that up and we'll love to hear challenges to any of my recommendations because <laughs> I'm always uh, up for reading something better than what I've already read. Um, I have a few. At first, I didn't have any, and then Victoria put that call out, and I thought, well, I do like science fiction. I can maybe come up with a few things. Um, Marie already mentioned Octavia Butler, who's a great place to start. Blood Child is a, a short story that is a really great introduction into um both issues of, of feminist theory as well as um, Christianity, if you're interested in reading um, your sci-fi that way. I would recommend um, a young adult series, which I know can be a contentious thing to recommend these days, but it starts with a book called Uglies by Scott Westerfeld. Um, I actually wrote about this a little bit in um, one of my classes for um, my master's degree at Florida State in in conjunction with Haraway's um, Cyborg Manifesto. So I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't remember more about Cyborg Manifesto at the time. But Uglies by Scott Westerfeld, it starts with Uglies and then moves up through Pretties, Specials, and Extras. And I think Specials is where the tie-in to the Cyborgs in this book especially are, are particularly interesting. But it follows the same protagonist through the um, those three books. And deals a lot with identity and self-perception and um, obviously there are politics and plot moving things going on there too as you get with young adult novels. But um, it's it's pretty savvy when it comes to identity politics, I thought. Um, the other that I would recommend is somewhat contentious, Tamara Pierce. Um, she's a great feminist voice in fantasy more than science fiction. Um, fiercely feminist or strongly feminist. The... The religious part is certainly debatable, though I think you can do some reading there if you care to. I would recommend starting with her Circle of Magic's court, Circle of Magic Quartet, um, four books that each focus on a different main character, um, and it, it really delves into like team-oriented equality and individual strength as contributing to the greater good of all people, and it's it's just a really I think it's a pretty remarkable series. And then the other one is um, by Orson Scott Card, who I know is a pretty contentious character um, himself. But I read Ender's Game as a sixth grader, young, impressionable child, and was immediately caught up in the story. And then read Speaker for the Dead, which is considerably more philosophical. And then the series goes on through, I think, three more books, Speaker, um, Xenocide, and then Children of the Mind. And I think it ends at Children of the Mind. I might be missing one. Um, but it, it deals a lot with this ideal of idea, the, these ideas of colonization and um, it gets even more into alien versus human and where those divides are and toys with the, the, the binary of, um, uh, of 
like can the the canny and uncanny, you know, what feels comfortable versus what is foreign to us. Um, and plays with it quite a bit in a very interesting way. And though card himself is, um, Mormon, uh, I don't, I didn't read a whole lot of that in this particular series. Um, it seems to be a much more open-ended discussion of, of religion. Yeah. I'm going to leave it there. So those are my recommendations. Turns out I had quite a few. Oh, those are all good good suggestions. Ender, Ender's Game, by the way, is another one of those novels that won both the Hugo and the Nebula. So yes. it's uh, definitely a science fiction classic. And going along with that, as you're talking, I thought I should recommend to another um, science fiction series that like Ender's Game contains a very uh, very good coming of age novel at, at its at its start. Um, that's Lois McMaster Bajold's Vorkosigan Saga, which um, depicts the Baryaran Empire. Um, so it's an example of this uh, human empire rather than an alien empire, and also contains a lot of the major tropes of the space opera that's being um, played off of in Ancillary Justice. So I'll also go ahead and recommend uh, the sequel to Ancillary Justice, Ancillary Sword, which came out in October, and it continues Breck's adventures and furthers the concern with uh, gender and colonization in a couple ways. So, for example, with the description, a pretty humorous description near the beginning of the novel of uh, colonized cultures, defiant celebration of sexual difference in the face of the Raj... Rodchai disinterest in gender through a festival where garlands of plastic genitalia are hung around the city. Um, so this kind of thing, you want if you want more of the universe of uh, ancillary justice, you can get an ancillary sword. And I'd also like to recommend um, a, a nonfiction piece by Ursula K. Le Guin, a short autobiographical essay, which was first written as a performance piece titled Introducing Myself. And it begins with the line, I am a man and talks about male as the default for human, like we were talking about. Um, and it, you can find it in the 2004 collection of her writings called The Wave in the Mind. Um, and it's also discussed with uh, some excerpts on the site brainpickings.org. And I'll put the, uh, put the URL for that up on the show notes for you. So thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations, including some science fiction for Victoria um, or topics for, for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Zach Smith is our intern. For Victoria Farmer and Sheila Woodruff, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in next time for an exciting episode on the feminisms of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.